Welcome everybody to the Stand Up For Kids podcast. Today's topic is what is it like to be homeless? And so we have our guest today, Alex, who is a current youth in the Stand Up For Kids program in Orange County. And he's going to share a little bit of his insights on that question and many other subjects. So uh, welcome, Alex. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, let's, let's hope this whole Zoom thing holds up. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's not pull any punches here, uh, Alex. So what is it like to be homeless? First off, I think that's, that's a very broad question. I think I'd like to go into let's, like, the misconceptions of what sort of makes someone homeless and knock that out, which a lot of times, you know, people assume a person's lazy, they just don't want to work, or they assume the person is a drug addict or, you know, other things of that sort. And a lot of times people are caused to be homeless in their early youth. So let's say like middle school, high school, and they don't have a lot of options for for work or you know, it's not something that they, they chose. And so I think that first off, those are some misconceptions a lot of people think. Yeah. So I guess maybe I can frame my question a little bit to help understand what I'm, what I'm getting at. So if I, you know, circumstances are what they are, there's some, some set of circumstances that is now caused you to not have it, not have a roof over your head. So you are now in a situation where you do not have a roof over your head and you are on the street or, you know, the places that you have been, what is that like? What is the, what is the, what are you thinking about? How are you feeling? Where are you? I think a lot of times, at least whenever it came to my situation, I was sort of trying to plan ahead. So I was, I was still in high school uh, and middle school. So I was trying to plan on how I was going to get to class. But I was also having a constant anxiety of trying to figure out like, I'm going to get food, how I'm going to get food. And a lot of times you, you spend time traveling, right? You don't stay in one spot for very long because it, you know, you, you just, you can't um, because either people are going to show up and they're going to mess with you or let's say they try and rob you or, you know, you can get arrested. I, I'm not sure what the charge is, but I know that the police will sometimes come ahead and pick you up. A lot of times it's for trespassing, but so I spent a lot of my time traveling around, trying to panhandle to try and get my next meal, things like that. That's what I spent most of my time doing. And coming from Texas, specifically a lot of times in the summer, you know, you don't, you don't have money, right? A lot of times when you're homeless, you, you obviously don't have money. A lot of times you're worried about trying to like fight dehydration, but you're also trying to have to watch your back and not get arrested or picked up for panhandling. So yeah, water, food, safety, where you're going to sleep, kind of, you know, just kind of the basics that a, you know, a, a person needs to, to live. Those things are, are, I guess, not guaranteed in that environment. Yeah. And I think for me being, so being a, a recovering, a recovering addict, a lot of times the place to stay was sort of my last priority. Because it, it was like, I knew there was nowhere for me to go anyway. So really, what was the point in me worrying about it if I know there's nowhere for me to go? So most of the time, I would end up using, so I'm, I'm recovering like meth addict and a recovering, you know, just addict all around. Uh, so a lot of times I'd end up using just so I could stay up. So I didn't really sort of put my head down anywhere. I just, I kept moving, stayed awake for days on end. That way I wouldn't have to like, go to sleep and let my guard down. Because when you're on the streets, your guard is constantly up, you know, whether it be because you're worried about other people messing with you or, or robbing you or, or whatever the circumstances may be. A lot of my time spent was, you know, trying to stay up, was not focused on somewhere to go, but focused on how I was going to eat and get get something to drink. Yeah, so, so rather than trying to find a place to sleep and knowing how impossible that you know, how limited that idea even was, you would take drugs to keep yourself awake. So you just don't have to deal with that component. Yeah, I think also it's like, whenever you're thinking about survival, the place to stay at, at that point really doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Like, well, at, let's, at that point, go, go on. 
so, well, if so, l let's say you had a, a friend's house that was comfortable and you could stay there, that would be much preferred to the uh, these other options, right? Yeah, it would be it would be much preferred, but a lot of times you don't have those options. So there were points in time when I had those options, whenever I'd be able to go and stay over at a friend's house, or I'd go and and be able to like sleep somewhere, and that was always great to know that I'd had that place. But in terms of when you don't have those options, you're you're just sort of like fighting to stay. To, I don't know if I want to say like stay alive, but to stay afloat. But whenever you do have those options, it's always nice to have somewhere to go. Like, let's say, I like to call it a home base, you know, a place that you can go ahead and leave some of your stuff at, a place that you can go ahead and you can go, maybe even if you can't sleep there, uh, at least, you know, sometimes your friends will let you charge your things overnight. So you can leave your stuff in this digital age that is very important. So you can leave your stuff over there, leave it charging overnight and then pick it up in the morning and then just continue with your day. But sometimes, you know, home bases aren't, aren't always an option. But whenever you do have the option, it is, it's always great to take advantage of that. Yeah, so I guess the, the mindset that you're describing is there's literally, like, my options are so limited on a, a safe place to sleep that at some point, whether I, the options that I do have are, are equivalent are all equivalently awful. So I'm going to try to fix, try to deal with that by just not going to sleep and then not having to deal with the safety component of sleeping. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the only times I would sleep was uh, whenever I had, you know, like, as I said, like a home base, you know, like a friend's house or things like that. Cause in that, I mean, even then that wasn't always safe because I've, I've had numerous incidents happen at, at, you know, like friends' houses that I thought were safe. I don't know if we want to dive into those situations, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's a lot safer to be at a friend's house and you can let your guard down. But other times, whenever you're staying at a friend's house, they have a lot of people over or they're having a party or whatever's going on. You're going to deal with some shady people on the street, first off, and especially if you're in the drug scene with a lot of shady people and if you're staying at a house or at your home base with a lot of shady people there you know that that leads into more of a like you need to be hyper aware component so <clears throat> we want to dive into that uh, we can go there i want to i do want to ask you about sleep though so if i'm now in this case where i'm afraid to sleep like because of a safety scare so i'm taking drugs that are keeping me awake so that I don't deal with that. How does that affect you mentally over time? It's got to be troublesome. So, you know, obviously whenever you're taking, taking stimulants, so things like, let's say Adderall or methamphetamine, you're already paranoid being on the street because you always have to watch your back, whether it be from other people on the streets or whether it be from, you know, the police, different things like that. You're always already hypervigilant. And paranoid so whenever you take that take those drugs it makes you even more paranoid and it makes you very sketched out and it just sort of deteriorates the few little bits of logic that you have especially when you're not sleeping you'll start to have you know like hallucinations and things like that and you'll, you'll start to hear see things that, that maybe aren't there but to you it's completely real so in the end you know taking those drugs that you may think are keeping you up and keeping you safe are in turn you know, making things more dangerous and you're backing yourself into a wall where you have no other option but to continue using. Yeah, and I guess like probably loneliness is is another concept that weighs heavily that you're you're feeling in this situation as well. Yeah, loneliness definitely was a huge, a huge issue with me. Like I got to the point where so there there were some points whenever or the majority of the time I didn't really have anyone to talk to, right? It was just, it was just me and my drugs. And so in a sense, my drugs became my best friend. They were the only thing that wouldn't leave me. They were the only thing that wouldn't like threaten me or steal from me. And the only thing that was always there when I needed it, because just a, lot, a lot of times when you're on the streets, you're going to try and get a hold of somebody and you can't get a hold of them. 
usually because they're unreliable. So the drugs became the only thing that was stable in my life. And then also, you're, I also got to a point to where I preferred having fake love and fake friendships rather than no friendships at all. Yeah. Um, which is incredibly toxic, but they got to the point where it's like, I'd rather have someone use me, lie to me, and tell me they love me and tell me they care about me just to get drugs or just to get whatever they wanted from me rather than just being just being on my own. Yeah, I guess I guess I would think there's probably a little bit of hope there that may, you know maybe this person actually does care, and in the back of your brain you're like, well, probably not, but you know there's a chance. Versus if I'm by myself, then there's no chance. Exactly, and I think a lot of times, like I gave people second chances because I believed, you know, maybe maybe they changed, maybe they, you know, like you said, maybe they do care, maybe it is a real relationship. So in in your in your heart of hearts, you you know. You kind of know the truth, but your options are so sparing that you're willing to, you know, at the end of the day, maybe be exploited or you, yeah, you're willing to take that chance. Yeah. And you mentioned Texas. So let's not go there yet. Let's, let's kind of lay out, let's, let's paint the picture for somebody too. kind of, you know, in the moment I, I am homeless. Where am I? Where, where, where do I sleep? Am I on the sidewalk? Am I in a park? Am I under a bridge? Am I, you know, what's, what's kind of, kind of set the scene for somebody, you know, and I, I have not been homeless, so I don't know. I, I have a, I want to understand the, the picture and try to see it as well as I can through your, your lens. So I think one of, one of the big issues with being a homeless or at least like, I don't, I don't know if it was one of my big issues or, you know, something maybe that helped me in the long run, but you're constantly moving. You, you can't stay in one place, as I said before. So sometimes you're able to find somewhere to like lay and sort of like make your own home base, quote unquote, to like make an encampment, things like that, where you can stay for a while. I never had the ability to do that. I never had somewhere where I could make like, a makeshift home, right? And make an encampment somewhere that I could stay long term. I never had that luxury. So I was constantly on the move whenever it was winter. And, uh, you know, believe it or not, Texas gets ice. Texas does get cold sometimes. I ended up sleeping behind, you know, behind a building on like a, on a patio. And I remember we, we had one of like the worst ice storms that we had in years. And uh, I remember just sleeping on just a patch of ice back on this on this front porch on this little patio um, behind an insurance building, and having those little corners definitely helps like keep heat in. But so where you're staying definitely changes from time to time. So depending on if it's cold, you're gonna try and find like a small little corner to huddle into. Most of the time you're on the ground. You really don't have any other options, but but be on the ground. And then other times, let's say if it's if it's raining, you're gonna be under a bridge at times. I had issues though whenever I would stay under bridges. Police a lot of times would come and bother me. And so I'd end up trying to you know, go go somewhere else and find somewhere else to go. I didn't do a lot of sleeping in fields. It was mainly under bridges and and behind buildings whenever I did find somewhere to go. Uh or what was it? Carport, not carports, but the the big concrete structures where you can, big concrete like parking lots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of times those are really nice places to go because it's, you know, it's helping block wind. It also helps like insulate because of all the concrete around you. There's, there's not like a big open, open area. Or there, there was one time I was able to find an abandoned house that I was able to stay in for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time. And that, that was great. Like, I remember being so excited and being like, I have somewhere to go, you know, like I, I know I have somewhere to go. So I guess at one point I did have that luxury of a stable, a stable housing situation. So I, I think sometimes you, you're going to find these little places that you're going to be able to go for a little bit. And when I say a little bit, I mean like maybe three days. Uh, that's a long time, at least in my situation, being able to stay in the same place for three days instead of having to constantly just move. 
But I think while you're constantly moving, that also helps you out because then you're not too focused on your situation. You're just in survival mode. So then you don't get too hung up on, I guess, what, what's going on, you know, really. How did you find that house? Um, so I had been, I, I don't know if I want to call this guy a friend, but I had this, this guy who I used to use with a lot of times. And he, he basically used me for my money and, and different other things that I'm not going to dive into. But uh, he had this place where he used to like to go all the time to go and, and shoot up or, you know, use drugs. And he used to stay behind the house on the patio. And so I always asked him, I was like, why don't, you know, why, why are you sitting out here on the patio? And he basically was just like, you know, because I pass out before I'm able to get inside. So I went ahead and it's basically just a place my friend used to like to go to use. And so I am going there. So you open the door and you walk inside and there's obvious that nobody's ever, nobody's lived there in a, in a, in a while. Yeah, so it was under, it was under renovation. And so there was, there was no windows. There was not really any flooring. Uh, there was no walls. It was just sort of, uh, whenever you're doing like, it's basically just the framework of a house. Okay. Um, and so there was some plywood on the floor, but other places there was no flooring at all, things like that. But it, it did lock, right? It did lock, which was nice. Which is huge, right? It's huge because I felt I felt so much safer being in there. Just the fact that I can lock a door. Granted, it wasn't my house, and you know it, it's weird thinking of the fact that you can lock someone else's house. But it's like it, it used to be a, it used to be a crack house actually, and it got raided at one point. And so I I assume that's why no one had never gone back to that house. But basically, just just the framework of a house missing like missing flooring, didn't have walls, anything like that. But I was able to lock it and, and like sleep sound at night. What caused you to have to leave that place then? After a while, like I, I would notice other people's, so I would notice other people's needles like around, around the house. Um, and it wasn't people's needles that I knew because the different needles have different types. And mm -hmm. so I would know like if it was my friends, like friends, or I would know if it was like a, a different random person. So it turns out that other people had been going there either when I wasn't there or while I was there and I just didn't know it. And so that obviously makes it makes you kind of uneasy. But I think the reason I left ultimately was I was able to go to my grandma's for a little bit. And then I, I had some preceding, uh, some following events where I, I overdosed twice, less than 24 hours. And then I went directly to treatment. And that story ends up leading you to California ultimately, correct? That's the, yes. okay. So I want to, I do want to go there, but I am really, this is really interesting and um, it, it, it really helps put somebody who has a house over their head and always has had a house over their head kind of into the mindset of what, you know, day-to-day -day living is like not having that luxury. Um, so I, I really appreciate you kind of sharing your, what's going on in your brain in these moments. What was the longest stretch of time that you were homeless in that mode? Um, homeless as far as like couch surfing or just housing instability or just completely like on the street. Yeah, let's go with completely on the street. Completely on the streets. It was, it was maybe an increments of three, like three to four months. So, so it was... Yeah. So in so you you laid out a mindset of hey I'm in a house hey I'm on the street hey I'm taking drugs to stay awake, and you literally were in that day to day minute by minute mindset for three to four months, at a time. At a time. So it would it would maybe maybe be. It usually was between like one and and three months, but the longest stint was maybe like four and a half. But so it would be, you know, like a couple months on the street. I'd be able to go to my grandma's for a couple of days, or I'd be able to go to a friend's for a couple of days. And then it would be another, you know, month and a half, two months, find somewhere else to go for a couple of days, and then another month and a half, two months. Yeah, so I can't imagine after like two days of living like that, I feel like you'd be exhausted. So then continuing to live like that. For another 90 120 days on top of that like just just gotta feel like you'd be like worn down and just 
beat up. Yeah, a lot of times you're just sort of dragging yourself. Like one of my big priorities was was going to school. So I was still going to school. I was homeless most most of the time, the majority of the time actually. So a lot of times you're just dragging. Like I remember I show up to class, be exhausted, be all gross because it's you know hot in Texas, and so. I'd show up, just drain the class, and like nobody would have really any idea. You know, a lot of times they they don't think they don't go. Oh, he looks like crap because he has nowhere to go. And a lot of times they go, oh, he just looks like crap because he just doesn't take care of himself or, or whatever the situation may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times you're just you're just dragging, like you're, you're, in survival mode. That's that's the only way I can put it. Gotcha. Wow. Uh, and then, so, and you, you mentioned there are stints at your grandma's house or at a friend's house. So what would, what would be the, what would be the end reason for not having that as a place to continue to be and having to go back to the street? So whenever it came to, like, I, I started out being homeless whenever I was in middle school. So early middle school, I remember like sixth grade, between like fifth and sixth grade. My father was, so my father was always very violent. And, um, you know, I used to have to call the cops on like or get the cops into my house all the time um because of just the violence going on in my household um and so me and my father would get in into fights or arguments and then he would tell me to get my stuff and leave and so i would grab my stuff and i'd leave because it's his house right so get in fights and things would blow up and then you know my mom would convince me to come back and then we would begin the cycle again you know like i'd be there for a little bit my dad would start getting violent again and then help me get my stuff and leave. And then with the stuff of my grandma, there were times whenever, you know, you're going to go out and you're going to use, right? Like I didn't, cause I was still using when I was at my grandmother's, but I didn't, I didn't feel right about using in her house. So there were times whenever I'd end up going out to go get high and then I would just pass out before I'd be able to make it back to her house. But ultimately she would, She'd let me back in for a little bit because I was looking for a job and I had proof I was looking for a job. Um, and then she would just get tired of me sitting there. And then we'd, we'd get in arguments and then she would kick me out. And then she let me back maybe like twice. But usually she would just let me back whenever it got like too cold or too hot. So, all right. So fifth grade, fifth grade is the first time that you left the house. So you're... Yep. You're 10 years old, 10 or 11? Yeah, I'd say 11 or 12, yeah. Okay, 11 or 12. If I were to look at an 11-year-old right now, I mean, I'm old, but like that's a that's a baby. That's like a really small child to go fend for themselves on the street and try to figure out life. That's like shocking to to most people. I think they'd be like, "Wow, that is that's insanity." And again, that's a family, so that's a, I don't know how you, a breakdown of the family unit that the resultant required you to do that. Exactly. And I mean, there were points in time whenever like CPS would get involved and uh, I, there'd been a lot of involvement with CPS in my family in the past. And it didn't end well for the kids in my family who did go to like foster care or, or get sent away to be a ward of the state or whatever you know, the circumstances may be. And so a lot of times CPS would get involved and they'd, they'd question me and I would just say, hey, no, there's nothing going on. Because to me, it was like I'd much rather be out on my own rather than first off, get my parents in trouble. And then second off, you know, rather than like dealing with the, the, horror, the horror stories from my family of like not being able to see a lot of the kids or have have relationships with a lot of the kids in my family who did get sent away. So I'd rather be homeless and fend for myself and be able to you know, have my family in my life rather than completely have to cut out my family and then deal with possible abuse in foster homes. So, so you as a, as a really young kid are faced with XYZ, you know, all, all of these situations that you have to navigate and then some choices so you did have some choices of how to deal with what was in front of you but all the choices were awful 
and you used your logic and understanding of the current environment to make a decision that was the the best of a lot of awful options. Exactly. Uh, I think also once you get to a certain age um, and CPS is talking about getting involved again or like they got real serious around the time maybe when I got 15 or 16, CPS got, got like a lot more more serious about trying to address my situation partly because i i did tell the truth about some stuff that was going on in my house you know it's like you're 15 16 it's like you've been at my age i'd already been out on the streets what for like five or six years almost roughly and it's like it's kind of late then you may as well just keep spinning for yourself until you turn 18 you're 17 in texas but it's like you may as well at that point yeah so getting into the system when you've already managed for x number of years without that it's a big unknown you don't know what you're what you're really signing up for so let's it's the the lesser of or the there's a phrase that that's gonna slip my mind now but it's lesser of two evils in a way maybe yeah that that was it and you mentioned uh you know you've mentioned drug use many many times over this call over this chat and can you tell me a little bit about where did that start? What's the genesis of, of drugs for you? The genesis for drugs with me, it's quite a bit different than what most people think. A lot of people, or most people think, but what also a lot of people go through, a lot of people sort of like uh, maybe start out with with a lesser of, you know, the hard the harder drugs being like heroin, fentanyl, meth, things like that. A lot of people start out you know, something, something smaller, something less strong. The genesis for me was, uh, I was always taught in my family, you don't feel well, you have a headache, you're dealing with some problems, they, they give me a hydrocodone. So I don't ever remember an age when they weren't giving me like opiates or, or different things. Because I was, so I was a very sickly child. I was born like a month and a half early. So I had med- a different medical issues I had to deal with. So every time I didn't film well, my parents would just give me a hydrocodone or give me like an oxycodone or things like that. And like I said, I don't ever remember an age where I wasn't doing that. But I remember whenever I hit age 15, um, I started shooting up fentanyl. So there, there was really no like slow progression for me. It was really just like nothing or like straight to fentanyl, essentially, and, and straight to not even like smoking fentanyl or anything else. It, it was straight into IV drug use. So I just sort of jumped right in. Very bad idea. It's amazing I'm still here. But the genesis for me was I was always taught if there was an issue, you know. Just... Yeah, I mean, hydrocodone and oxycodone and fentanyl are all opiates, right? Just of uh, different strength levels. Yes. What's the street name of hydrocodone and oxycodone? Uh, hydrocodone, it's, it just goes by hydros okay. and then oxycodone just goes by oxys. I mean, it's pretty much. So that's, is that oxycontin or is that different? Uh, it's so oxycodone is the generic of oxycontin. Okay. Yeah. And oxycontin is heavy. Like there's lots of stories. Yeah. I mean, it's not fentanyl. Fentanyl is worse, right? That's uh, yeah. a, it's a more potent version of oxy well, for, for a lay person who doesn't who obviously doesn't know that much about drugs. Yeah, so it first started out essentially just with pain pills, and then it went from directly from pain pills to, um, what was it, to, to going to fentanyl, which fentanyl usually is, is used for extreme, extreme pain. Like it's, they don't, a lot of times they'll give it to people who are dying from cancer to make them feel comfortable uh, before they pass. Yep. Um, but the, the thing was is that I also had several spinal fractures early in my youth and just different different injuries over the years. And so I was getting medication from my parents. And then I was also seeing a pain management doctor. And my pain management doctor would also give me pain meds. And they actually started prescribing me fentanyl at one point, which to prescribe a 16-year-old fentanyl is nuts. Sounds nuts, yeah. Uh, and you, so you, and you said you shot, shot up fentanyl when you were 15 and you went straight to the, straight to a really 
potent drug dose. So why'd you do that? Well, I mean, there's why I did that. I don't really, I, mean, I don't I, know if I thought about it too much, but I know that first off, whenever you're, you're shooting up, there's nowhere else for you to go from there. That's, there's, there's no other option as a more dangerous, be more addictive. Um, and it's just, there's nowhere, there's no progression for you to go from there. So if you start from that, there's no chasing that you're just going to be chasing the dragon forever, so to speak. And then also fentanyl, there's nothing stronger than fentanyl that you can get. That, that's it. There's nowhere else for you to go from there as well. Um, and so I remember at, I don't know why I shot up, but I remember forcing myself to do it. Like I didn't want to do it, but for some reason I was like, I don't know if I intentionally wanted to, I think part of it was I intentionally wanted to push myself to a point to where it was, there's no going back. And part of that was because I, I was really suicidal and apathetic. I didn't, I really didn't care. And so I wanted to make things worse for myself. That way I had no other option than to kill myself. And so I know that was a big reason of why I shot up. But I don't know if I really had any like logic behind why I shot up. I don't know. I think that's still a mystery. Also, I reused a needle. The first needle I ever used was a reused needle. From somebody else. Somebody. Yeah, from, from somebody else. Yeah. yeah, which is also like a no-no, right? Like not smart. But yeah, I mean, so let's also think about, okay, you're 15. You've already been dealing with family trauma. You got kicked out or left when you were 11 or 12. So this is four or five years into that. You're still just like a brain that's not fully formed yet. Um, and after all of this stuff and, and where did you get the, where'd you get the drugs? Uh, so I got the fentanyl from my mom. And did your was your, did your mom have a prescription for it or? Yeah, my mom had prescriptions for it. Um, so she was, she was very sick. Um, she was, she had battled cancer and numerous other things, uh, throughout her life. So. Okay. So it was easy, easily accessible to you then to snatch them? It, well, I mean, it was either given to me or, you know, I would just have to ask. Okay, so you didn't have to steal it. She just said, hey, mom, I want some fentanyl. And she'd be like, here you go. Yeah, or, or later on, um, there was a point whenever I did, I did steal uh, quite a bit of, of her medication. But that, that, was, that was much later on in the progression. Yeah, if I, like if I'm thinking about my mom and I... I don't think my mom ever took fentanyl, but let's say she got really sick and she had some fentanyl around and I said, Hey mom, I want some of your fentanyl. I'd be pretty shocked if she said, yeah, sure. Here you go. She'd be like, no, that's bad for you. Um, you can get addicted and you shouldn't do that. And that's, I mean, that's what I think my mom would say. Maybe I'm wrong, but your mom didn't say that. Well, is- I think from my, from my mom's logic, it was, uh, it was more of, you know, hey, mom, I'm hurting really bad. Can I get something for pain? So from my mom's logic, it was, I'm just trying to help. You know, it wasn't my mom's intention for things to pan out the way they did. But it was, so from her perspective, it was like, I'm just trying to, to help my son. Um, was your mom, uh, was, did she have, was she, uh, I mean, she was probably on a lot of drugs. Was she all there kind of in a mental in a mental way um so definitely not at that age I, I know my mom did suffer from um a couple mental disorders um we never really figured out what they were but um we're, we're thinking it was bipolar and something else at so at, at that age at 15 um all my brothers had already passed away and that definitely took a toll on my mom and once my third brother passed away it it was just it was all downhill from there for my mom as far as her mental health went i think at at that point my mom so my mom had known that i was suicidal for a while and 
my mom knew that one of the things that was keeping me from committing suicide was was using drugs. That's what helped get me through my day was using drugs. And so I, I think something important was, you know, I was the last kid left, like the only son that hadn't died yet. And so I know that she mentioned before feeling like she was just trying to keep me alive, you know, the only one left. And so I know that was something that was that was very important for her. So that may have been a big motivation. Wow. It's heavy stuff, Alex. You've been through a lot. And I'm I'm really thankful that you're willing, you know, you're so open to sharing and kind of talking about it. So you're a kid this whole, you know, for a majority of the time that we're, I mean, you're still a kid. Let's, let's be real. But did you, so did, did you graduate high school? Uh, so I didn't graduate high school. Um, I went ahead and got my GED and tested out uh, at age 16. Okay. Cool. And so I started, I started college at age 16. That's interesting. Where do I want to go with that? That's interesting. Um, I don't think I knew that. So got your GED at 16. So that tells me that you're motivated. Why did you do that? For me, as I mentioned, like my mom had been pretty sick and I, I had always taken care of my mom because my, my father didn't do it. But so to give you some context, my mom would stop breathing like quite frequently, like maybe like once every two weeks, whether it be from an accidental overdose or whether it be from, you know, hypertension, hypotension or, or cancer or diabetes or you know, she, she had all these problems. Um, and my big thing was if I went ahead and tested out, got my GED, I'd be able to stay home and take care of my mom. Mm. Um, and so that was one of my big motivations was just being able to stay home, take care of my mom, and, and make sure she was, she was still going to be around. So, yeah, so let's power through school. But that, you know, we've been talking about your kind of immediate needs that you're trying to meet this whole time. But then there is a, you know, part of you that's thinking about your future to some extent that, you know, a GED is important for your next steps. And then, then you're enrolled in school. Um, so would you, what did, what, uh, what kind of school, what, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe. <laughs> what do I want to be when I grow up? Um, <laughs> So I, I was going to school for, for several degrees at the same time. I, mean, I was going for maybe like four degree plans at, at the same time. And uh, I was going for Associate of uh, Applied Arts. Um, I was going for the registered nursing program. And I was going to transfer to a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. And uh, also doing my EMT to prepare, to prepare for transferring to my paramedic. And then I... That was it. Okay, and so that's that's at age sixteen that you start attending college to take on those degrees. And how how old are you now? I'm twenty one now. And and our whole story. Where where have we been since? You know, where where did you grow up? As far as like the state. Just situation. the state. Where, where are you geographically? Uh, geographically, so I was in I was in North Texas. I was in Tarrant County, and a lot of my time I spent in Fort Worth, and part of the time was also North Richland Hills. Um, but the majority of the time was Fort Worth. So that's uh, when you were homeless. You were traveling around Fort Worth. For the yeah, most. so in DFW, Fort Worth, all the mid cities. Got it. Okay. And where are you now? Uh, right now, I am in assignment Orange County. And how did you get from Fort Worth to Orange County? I had I had spent years trying to quit drugs. I had a I had a good spell when I was like sixteen or or seventeen, where I was I was doing good. You know, I was I was in college, I was doing great, and then that um, an old friend came back into my life, and then I sort of spiraled back down again. So I I spent years trying to quit drugs. You know, in the same area that I had been in which if you're trying to quit drugs it doesn't help that your dealer is like 15 minutes away it doesn't help mm -hmm. sorry question though so you at some point decided drugs were not a good path and i want to go a different way and improve myself 
essentially yes so a lot of the times i spent trying to quit i didn't i didn't ever try to quit for myself i never tried to quit because i wanted to quit uh i would try to quit for a significant other or i would try and quit for because other people wanted me to i, I never tried to quit because i wanted better or because i wanted to stop and i know this time that that's what's different is that i'm i'm quitting and i quit because I want to. It's the first time I've ever made a conscious decision to stop. And um, but so anyways, I tried to stop for years back in Texas. Uh, that I learned that that obviously didn't work. And uh, I had, as I mentioned before, I had overdosed to this, this past spell, past like incident. Uh, I had overdosed twice and stopped breathing several times within you know, 24 hours. Uh, less than 24 hours, and uh, I had been calling. I'd been calling different rehabs or different resources for a little while. I have this thing where whenever I get really high or really drunk, and I know that I'm overdosing, I call. I like look up. I, I look up how much alcohol is too much alcohol, <laughs> and then it gives me a helpline, and then I call the helpline in Google. And so I'll call, and then people will try to help me out and like redirect me or try to get me into rehab, things like that. So I had I had made several phone calls to these different rehabs and they basically were like, look, you just stop breathing several times within, you know, so many hours. They're like, if you don't get help now, you're going to die and, and you're going to stay that way. You're going to stay withdrawn. So they said, hey, we can get you on a flight tomorrow. Uh, I said, okay. Grabbed my stuff and uh, got on a flight, um, flew, to, uh, flew to Tennessee. Got picked up from Tennessee, went to rehab in Mississippi, and then transitioned from residential in Mississippi to a different program out here in Orange County. All right, so then you got to Mission Viejo, um, and I, I know your story a little bit. I've talked to you a few times, so I know that you are in 449 recovery, uh, and there's a there's a very interesting story about Carlia um, connecting with 449 recovery and how that initial match happened. But uh, long story short, we're going to talk about that. Go on. Are we? <laughs> okay. Long story short, Carlia barged into, not barged, it's the wrong word, uh, but she went into their office and said, hey, we're standing for kids. Here's what we do. The, the ownership leadership at 449 was like, hey, here's what we do. We think there is an opportunity for substance abuse um, youth in the 449 recovery program could benefit from an additional stand up for kids component in the in the path um, to recovery for at risk young adults and so we we started uh, working out of the 449 venue and Alex can you explain what I think I did that justice. Um, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, so, what what was your initial like touch point with stand up for kids? So, as you can tell from my story, I sort of have a habit of just jumping straight into things and not easing my way in. So I think I think maybe my first or second day in Orange County, maybe my first day in uh, in Orange County, stand up for kids was doing. Uh, you know, you were helping. No, it was Maria and Carlia. Um, they were helping people sign up for, like, they were doing assessments and helping people sign up for, like, EBT and food stamps, things like that. And uh, my first day there, I remember they, I was like, hey, I need some help with this stuff. I was like, yeah, I need to figure out my life. And Carly and Maria pulled me in to do an assessment. And, just did, and we did an assessment, try to see, like, what, what sort of needs I had. And, um, after doing the assessment, they got me set up with like my ABT and food stamps. And then went ahead, I don't remember whenever I started sponsoring me for a housing and, and like a rehab scholarship. But I do remember like very shortly after, you know, started sponsoring me or someone sponsored me for like a rehab scholarship uh, and was helping pay for my housing at the, at the rehab. Is that, where else do we want to go with that? Yeah, I guess. So what, so 449 Recovery does one thing, you know, what, why is stand up for kid like what is stand up for kids like why is that what's the distinction yeah and what why why and is the stand up for kids component like what value did that bring for you okay um 
So I think for me, the stand-up component is like, it's very important to me because, you know, I, I came out to Orange County and I didn't know anybody. And I mean, I still don't know a ton of people, but, you know, whenever you have been to several different rehabs, you're a direct transfer, you know, you've been in rehab for like 40 days, you've been gone from home for several months, things like that. You know, it helps to really have like a big community and helps to have like a really big support team. And I remember we used to do meetings on Thursdays before COVID hit. Um, we were doing in-person meetings. And um, it always helped to have, so Greg and Carly uh, were my mentors. Greg is still my mentor. They sort of helped with, I don't know if I want to say like making big life decisions. But so anytime I am struggling to figure something out or I'm dealing with something, you know, or I have an idea that I think may or may not be a good or bad idea, I'll call Greg or I'll call Carly and sort of run it by and it, it helps to have someone who's stable or someone who is older and sort of has their life together. You know, it helps to like have that second opinion, but it also helps to feel like you have a community and it helps to feel like you belong and as well, I kind of just jumped around that. That was that was weird. I literally just okay, whatever. Train of thought. All right. So as I was saying, you know, getting back to that, it helps whenever you have a community or like you feel like you know people. Um, especially whenever you're a direct transfer and you just you feel really alone. Uh so being able to do like the the weekly meeting. Uh, that we do with stand up and being able to know like all the other youth and the mentors, it, it sort of feels like a family. And it, it's something that I definitely know that I would not still be in recovery if it wasn't for having, you know, that big support team, that big team behind me. So, so yeah, I guess just to expand on that last statement. So if you stand up for kids wasn't there, like, like what would that mean? Oh, oh, I would have made so many worse decisions. I got way too excited about that answer. But I would have made so many bad, bad decisions um, because so sometimes I deal with impulsivity. Um, okay. Sometimes it's very apparent uh, and I don't think things through. I don't sort of like wait stuff out. Um, and there's been many times whenever I've wanted to leave rehab or I've wanted to go out and, and use or get high or self-harm or whatever. And you know, I've called Greg or I've called Carlia. Uh, or I've just waited until our Tuesday meeting and that sort of helped like get me through that moment and get me through that week because without you know having y'all as my support team I wouldn't have anyone behind me right whenever I get impulsive or I want to make bad decisions I wouldn't have anyone to run to and when you sit in your head you know doesn't you're the only person in your head so it's true that is true yeah you're not you're not going to make the best decisions <laughs> um and, and you're you're still 21 right you told us that yeah. so you're 21 i mean enough said like you're you're not you're not an adult yet well, i turned 21 in rehab which was it was weird being able to lingering drink in rehab like that's, turning that age in rehab that's a mind a mind bender <laughs> Like, well, I could go celebrate, but I am six months sober, so is it worth it? Yeah, so how how long have you been sober? What's Where are we at? Um, I'm six months and 20 days. So 200 days, give or take. 200 days, yeah. Amazing. Congratulations. Keep it up. Thank you. Keep it up, man. And so for those listening on audio who don't get to see Alex here, he does have a pretty sweet uh, purple hat on, uh, which right. is a kid's hat that uh, was delivered to him a couple of days ago. So what, why'd, you, why'd we give you a hat? So I, I, what is it? I ran, biked, hiked, and walked 250 miles in a month to help raise awareness for stand up for kids and for, you know, homeless youth to help get get sponsors and bring in donations to to help with housing for for different youth yeah so yeah we had so we had a virtual run that just ended on the 18th and alex was a key key player and he won first place on the total mileage for the for the event so we put in some 40 40 plus mile days which is which is pretty ba pretty ba pretty pg answer <laughs>
So if I'm a listener who, you know, you know, has now kind of walked in your shoes a little bit, what, you know, I guess maybe do you, do you have a, a takeaway kind of a, a tie it in a bow comment or thought or closing statement, closing statement. I mean, do, do I want to go back to the home, you know, the rain will come, the rain will go. Absolutely. Um, apparently I have a mantra according to Michael, <laughs> um, that, you know, no matter what you're going through, no matter what, what is going on, um, there, there are going to be storms, right? There's always going to be a storm. You're always going to find points whenever you're going to have a rough time and you're going to want to either, let's say if you're, if you're experiencing like substance abuse, right? You're going to want to relapse. You're going to want to not, you know, care. Um, you're going to want to give up, but it's, you know, it's just a moment, right? It's just, that's just one little, you know, minute in time. And as I say, like it, it'll pass, you know, the rain will come, the rain will go. You'll just, you'll make it through the storm as long as you keep moving. That's good, Alex. Well, thanks. Thanks for, for spending the time with us today. Really appreciate you. You know, I'm always rooting for you and Stand Up For Kids has got your back. So one day at a time, right? Yeah, one day at a time. Gotta wait it out. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening today to Listen Up, the Stand Up For Good podcast. A big thank you to our production team consisting of associate producer Billy Quinn and editors Ariba Kauka, Pablo Ortega, and Michelle Bernay. Find us on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Stand Up For Kids, please share this podcast with family, friends, and colleagues. Also, check out our website at standupforkids.org slash Orange County, and you can email me directly at michaelo at standupforkids.org to learn more. Please also consider a donation to help getting kids off the streets. 95 cents out of every dollar donated goes directly to support our kids. I'm your host, Michael Olson, Director of Development at Stand Up For Kids Orange County. Thanks for listening and have a great day.